0: 11 to 32, the parable of the lost son. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, "'How many of my father's hired men have food to spare?' and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound.
1: premise of this series is that we can change the world. And as author Scott Higgins writes, that's a rather ambitious thought, isn't it? When we hear statements about changing the world, they tend to refer to something that needs to happen out there. Oftentimes it's about the need for external change, be it the change of government or policy, legislation, the media or various systems and structures that shape our society. If they could change whatever or whomever they are, then we things would be better off. We would at least have a chance of things being better. However, whilst we can and at times should be working hard to bring about change in others and in ungodly structures and systems, change has to firstly start in our own hearts and lives. And this is what we must keep in mind The change that is being spoken of, proposed during this series is not about change out there, rather it is about change in here. In particular, in the context of this four-week conversation, we are talking about changing to become more and more like the versions of ourselves that God created us to be. The perfect, the, sorry, the perfected, sanctified version of yourself is different to the current you. God's goal in and through Christ is to get you and I to a place where we most fully image and reflect His glory. This is, of course, a lifelong process and one which will never be fully complete until God's final restoration of heaven and earth. But we are well and truly in that process now. It's a process that continues. I have a little bookmark in my Bible which says, change is about me. And I like this because it reminds me that I need to be the change that I want to see in the world. However. I think there is a missing ingredient. My own efforts to change and become more and more like Jesus will always come up short. Any worthwhile, lasting change is only going to come through an empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I want to slightly change the statement and say that change is about God and me that change is about God and us. Culturally, we are surrounded by change. One classic example is the rapid change in technology these days. Things keep getting faster, slimmer, streamlined, wireless. Higgins writes, The truth is our environment, cultures and lives are always in a state of change. Some of these changes are very personal, such as the change that occurs when we choose to marry or have children. Some are cultural, such as a shift in Australia from a predominantly white Anglo-Saxon population to a more multicultural society. Some are global, such as the rising standards of living enjoyed by billions across the planet. Some changes are for the better. Some are for the worse and some have both negative and positive outcomes. Whether we like it or not, change is all around us and is occurring within us all the time. Even think from a physical point, we are changing. Our bodies are not static. They develop, grow, age. Whilst our physical age might somewhat dictate our physical development or decline, our physical age does not have to determine the growth of our character and Christ-likeness that is taking place within us. Therefore, the question is not, are we changing? But how are we changing? How are we changing to become more Christ like? The theological term for this is sanctification, and it means to set apart, to make holy. The Holy Spirit dwelling inside each believer is sanctifying us. Our role is to cooperate and participate in this process by submitting to God's word, God's ways, and God's will. Every single person is made in the image of God, but this image has been marred by sin. Sanctification, therefore, is the journey back to our original selves, our Christ-like selves. And it is to this journey that we turn. We are being propositioned that the single thing that can bring about real and lasting change is generosity. What has been your experience with generosity? When you hear the word generous, what, or rather who, comes to mind? When did you last encounter generosity? There are all kinds of ways people can be generous. People can be generous with their money. People can be generous with their hospitality. People can be generous in the gifts that they give. People can be generous by sharing their possessions, the things they own. People can be generous with their time or their knowledge and skills. People can be generous with their affection. Generous with their listening ears. People can be generous with the words they speak. I want you to pause for a moment and think about when you last encountered true generosity. How did it make you feel? I want to invite you to turn to someone sitting nearby and share with them what that experience of generosity was and how it made you feel. Go for it. All right, let's come back together now. (laughs) Generosity is about going beyond what is expected. The Word conveys a sense of bountiful, abundant extravagance. An experience of generosity can leave us... Feeling spoilt, blessed, grateful, and loved. I'm not sure about you, but when I encounter rich generosity, it impacts me. I want to return the (laughs) favour, I want to respond in kind. And that's not always possible. We have some friends in Canberra who are so generous to us and we often find ourselves wanting to repay that generosity but there's nothing that we can do that really is going to repay the generosity that has been extended to us and they don't expect it either. They don't want it. There's actually a lot to be said for gratefully receiving, that blesses those who can be generous, doesn't it? But at the very least, it causes me, and I know it causes Bronnie, a desire to be generous to others. So here's the key, generosity fosters generosity, isn't that True if we are the recipients of generosity, oftentimes the impact will be that we will become or want to become more generous ourselves. The focus of chapter one in your books, the greatest discovery you'll ever make, is about encountering the generosity of God's love. The very first step towards becoming a more generous person is experiencing the generosity of God. And Scott Higgins has a wonderful 20-minute treatment on the prodigal son story that we've just heard this morning that he will delve into in greater detail than I will this morning. So I really encourage you to make sure that you participate in watching that this coming week. We often speak of God's love, and we know at an intellectual level that God is love. But I wonder is this our experience of God? What is your vision of God? And by this I mean the image or picture you have in your mind when you think about God. Do you think of God as judge? He gathers all the information and makes just and fair rulings? Do you think of God as king, seated on his throne in charge, making decisions, ruling with power, might and strength? Do you think of God as teacher, imparting infinite words of wisdom? Do you think of God as coach, Instructing, empowering, guiding and helping people reach their fullest potential? Do you think of God as referee, calling the shots, making decisions, enforcing the rules? Do you think of God as an executive, very busy with important meetings, making important decisions and dealing with important people? There are all kinds of pictures and images that we can have of God. The picture that Jesus holds up most readily is that of Father. And not just any father, but an extraordinarily generous father. Nowhere is this image of God as the generous father expressed better than in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son found in Luke 15, 11 to 32. Jesus told this parable for a number of reasons. One, being to teach about the nature of God as a loving father. In this highly familiar account, we see a father whose dignity is secondary to his affection. A father who is more inclined to give than to take, a father who is slow to anger and quick to forgive, a father who chooses restoration over rebuke, a father who never gives up on his kids. It's a beautiful image of God, isn't it? Luke 15. The word prodigal means recklessly extravagant, Wasteful or having spent everything. And whilst these terms are meant to refer to the younger son living extravagantly, spending everything he had on reckless living, this term of reference is equally suitable to the father who is recklessly extravagant in his generosity and grace the generosity of the father is exercised toward both sons. Firstly, in granting the younger son's initial request and then secondly, in welcoming him back with a celebration. He is equally generous to the elder son who also received his inheritance I think we often miss this, but we're told in the parable that the father divided his inheritance between his two sons, and according to Jewish law, the elder son would have received a larger portion than the younger son. When the older son complains about the father's treatment of the younger son upon his return, how does the father respond? With immense generosity. You see, at this point, the father has already given his inheritance to both sons. And what is the father's response to the oldest son? Everything I have is yours. (laughs) The parable teaches God's grace. To the question, what is God like? The parable answers, he is full of compassion, generosity, and grace. He allows his children to make their own decisions, and his love is not subject to the choices they make. The grace of God is freely offered to both lost sons, to ask for an early inheritance, was the equivalent of saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. The younger son rejected his father. The elder son was just as lost in his pride and arrogance, resenting his father's love toward his brother. His sin was not so much what he did as what he didn't do. Both sons have a distorted picture of their father. Their love for him seemed to be purely based on what they could get from him. What is outstanding, sorry, what is astounding is the response the father has to both of their rebellion. To the younger son, upon his return, the father says, "'Quick!' Bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but he is now found. So the party began. And to the eldest son's grumblings, the father says, My son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Is this not the most generous father imaginable? So I've been reflecting upon this parable, I've come to see that the youngest son represents the height of human selfishness, whilst the eldest son highlights the pride, ego, and arrogance that equally plagues humanity. I think at the root core of sin is selfishness and pride, is it not? And here we see both of those things reflected or represented in these two sons. It could be fair to say that every sin Finds its origin in the attitudes and the characteristics that are on display in this very parable. And what is the Father's response? It is one of generous love, of forgiveness, of grace. Now, it's interesting when it comes to this parable, this is just a bit of a side note. But people will often be quick to say, yes, but the younger son repented first and that's why the father was so generous with his love. Well, that might be true. But does the older brother repent? Does the father withhold his generous love from the elder son in this story? My son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. This is our God. This is His heart towards broken, selfish, prideful humanity. The goodness, grace, forgiveness and generosity of God is on full display in this beautiful story. (coughs) And of course, this image of a generous father is echoed right throughout Scripture. It is interesting though, that of all the pictures that Jesus could have chosen to portray God, the image, the picture that he uses is that of a generous father. Higgins writes, when Jesus spoke of God as father, it was to suggest that we are members of God's family, that God's heart is turned toward us, that God is bound to us with a love that cannot be quenched, even if unrequited, that God longs for and pursues us and we will receive generously from His hand. Some people have a hard time relating to God as Father, which is oftentimes largely due to a negative earthly fathering experience. Whilst I can't personally relate to this, it is very valid and real. I want to acknowledge that. In the most sensitive and sincere way, can I suggest that regardless of what your earthly experience of Father has been, no earthly father can compare to our Heavenly Father. That not even the best earthly father compares to the goodness and the generosity of a Heavenly Father. Sticking with the familiar language, the Bible also speaks of adoption. In Ephesians 1.5, we read, God decided in advance to adopt us into His family by bringing us to Himself through Jesus Christ. This is what He wanted to do and it gave Him great pleasure. God, the generous Father, has adopted us as his sons and daughters. No one adopts unless they really, badly want the child. Adoption is never forced upon. People aren't coerced into adoption. It's a rigorous process. There is no such thing as an accidental adoption. It is an incredibly intentional process. As I'm sure this fine couple down the front could attest to. The language of adoption speaks of the lengths God has gone to and will go to for His children. So friends, the encouragement in week one is to revel in the fact that we have such a generous Father. Allow God's generosity towards you in Christ. Sink in and touch your heart because the first step towards becoming a generous person is firstly receiving the generosity That has been so graciously extended to us. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious, generous, loving God, Father. We are in awe of your goodness and your undeserved, unmerited kindness toward us, toward all humanity. We thank you, Lord, that we can see in this story today that your love cannot be earned. But that it is freely given because you are indeed love. Lord, I pray that we might once again encounter the richness and the extravagance of your generous love toward us. That we might learn to just sit and. <coughs> in your goodness to us, Father. And from that place, you'll be able to do some wonderful things in and through us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.